we started in hard times to bring us all right well welcome to the public power underground public power's premier infotainment program that covers public power and public power adjacent news from a power department's perspective i'm robert cromwell the vice president of power supply for umatilla electric cooperative a former bailiff for king county superior court and the winston wolf of public power and today's celebrity guest host I'm Jason Fordney, editor of California Energy Markets and this week's podcast ambassador from News Data. I'm Klotzkanai PUD's controller, a founding contributor of Public Power Underground, the star of Aaron Reports, and the co-star for today's episode, Aaron Guillory. And I'm the creative director of Public Power Underground, manager of Klotzkanai PUD's power department and producer for today's recording, Paul Dockery. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, Robert. Good to see you all. Good to have you on. Good to hear you. Uh, and I really, I'm wondering, so this is the second celebrity guest host, and I'm wondering if we need to build in a monologue. Do you feel like we need a monologue in the in the guest host intro? intro? You know, if I had time to build, you know, 10 minutes of good, solid stand-up material, I'd be there, but I, I just don't have the time right now. Do you, I mean, I could write it. Do you think anyone would trust me writing their solid 10 minute monologue? I don't know that I trust myself even actually to do that. You, you might have to warm people up to that. Give, yeah. give, it, give it another season. Okay, give it another season. There we go. Uh, it's going to be great. I'm really excited about all this. So um, let's kick it. Let's go. All right. Well, this is season four, episode two, Administrator's Discretion. On today's episode, we have an exclusive interview with the administrator and CEO of Bonneville Power Administration, John Hairston. You can check the show notes for the timestamp for the John Hairston interview, if that's why you're here. But if you jump ahead, you'll miss all of us talking about all kinds of energy news, including a dispatch from Energy Twitter about electric vehicles, NEM 3.0, B2H, Fission, SCL, Aaron Reports, The Spark, and a bunch of winty banter in between. Witty yeah, lots, a lot of witty banner. Lot witty we banter just, in between. Wintry. <laughs> yeah, it's very important content that most that some people come for. Uh, before right. we get started, I do, I do, I need to interject a word from our presenting sponsor because we do have sponsors now. Very exciting. The presenting sponsor, Public Power Underground, is the Energy Authority. The Energy Authority is a nonprofit energy portfolio management company. What do I mean by nonprofit? Well, TEA is owned by public power entities. That makes them more than just public power adjacent. They are as underground as it gets. TEA's mission is to help clients maximize the value of their assets and meet their power supply goals. TEA does this by providing expertise in energy trading, advanced analytics, renewable solutions, and a whole lot more. Over 60 public power utilities have partnered with TEA to tackle their energy future. So if you're looking for for one of our own to partner with in navigating the uncertain future of our industry, visit teainc.org to learn more. Teainc.org. No backslash, no like backslash public power underground, no underground backslash. We haven't convinced any of our sponsors to give us a backsplash yet, <laughs> uh, but maybe maybe we will someday. TEA, I think that's a lesson learned. I think we The promo codes will come. Yeah. There you go. You need you need to work on that fifteen uh, percent discount pitch, Paul. Yeah, yeah. TEA. We need to give this fifteen percent discount. Yeah, sure. I, I will also say, Paul, thank you that uh, you know Umatilla is a a very happy uh, customer of the services that TEA provides, and we uh, 
enjoy that relationship. And uh, for me personally, uh, getting to work with Anna Berg in her new role there at TEA, as opposed to her former uh, position, we were, we're both embarked on new careers during COVID. So yes. go Anna. A bold new future. That is a first person testimonial. Uh, Klatskin IPUD is not a TEA customer. Uh, we don't like to talk about that, uh, but we got a first person testimonial here anyway. <laughs> got to be worth something. Got to be worth something. Got to be worth it. All right. Well, we're starting this week, like most weeks, checking in on power market indicators in the Northwest with our first segment, Aaron Reports. Fantastic. Let's get into it. This is Aaron Reports with Aaron Reporting, where we try to get up to speed on Northwest market indicators for January 24th, 2022. I'm Aaron Guillory, and I've got your market update for the week. October through September flows at the Dells for water year 2022 are currently forecasted to be 100% of normal, and April to September is at 101% flow at the Dell in KCFS on January 19th. Spot market power in the Northwest for delivery today is at $36.31 with gas at $4.02 per MMBTU, translating to a spark spread of $8.50 and a heat rate of 9000 In term markets, January heavy load at mid-sea is trading at $39.05 per megawatt hour. Mid-sea heavy load for February is at 50.3. February gas at Sumas is trading at 5.11, translating to a heat rate of 9800 BTU per kilowatt hour. August power at mid-sea is trading at 125.75 with Sumas gas at $4.05, translating to a heat rate over 31000 Checking in on Anstergy's aggregated basin data to check on snow in the region. The snow water equivalent for BC hydro generation basin is 134% of normal. For mid-sea, 115%. And aggregating all the snow in the Columbia River Basin that'll flow through Bonneville Dam, they estimate there is a 131% of normal snow blanket. Skiing season is on in the Slice Mountains. Both Whistler and Revelstoke currently have a snow base depth exceeding seven feet, with more than six inches of new snow in the last 48 hours. All trails are open, and 29 of the combined 42 lifts are open. Spending a beat at Bonneville's Balancing Authority, peak load this past week was about 8,242 yesterday at 9.25 a.m. During Lowe's peak, hydro generation was at 11,875. Wind Chen was 135. Conventional units were at 937. And nuclear was 1,167. All units in megawatts. Enzo for the October, November, December period sits at negative one oceanic Nino index. The multivariate Enzo index for November, December is negative 1.21. And the SST Consolidated Nino forecast indicates that La Nina conditions are likely to continue through spring 2022. This week in NOAA climate forecasts, the 6 to 10 day outlook has temp near normal for most of the region. Precipitation is expected to be above normal. The 30 day and 90 day outlooks indicate temperatures probably below normal for the entire region and above average precipitation for the northern region, with the southern halves of Oregon and Idaho looking normal. Special thanks to Energy for letting us use their dashboards, and thanks to Lugia for compiling this week's report. That's all we've got for this update. Well, thanks for the report, Aaron. Uh, I'm I'm pretty much loving this La Nina water year. How how are you feeling about it, Paul? I really like it. I like the snow. I like the snow in Canada. I like the snow in the Slice Mountains. I'm not a skier, but I support snow in the mountains in the winter because uh, that is great for hydro runoff. Let's all hope for a nice, cool, calm runoff that lasts a long time into summer. Yep. Let's keep let's keep that. Let's keep it nice and long. Give us some nice summer generation. 
All right. Well, next up is our weekly walk through public power and public power adjacent news in a segment we like to call public power desktop. Paul, give us the typewriter. And I'm, I'm on it. I'm on it. All right. Take it away, Jason. Okay. Idaho Power, Pacific Corps, and Bonneville Power Administration have reached a non-binding agreement that clarifies and updates roles and responsibilities for the Boardman to Hemingway B2H transmission line. As part of the agreement, uh, BPA proposes to acquire transmission service for transfer service from Idaho Power under its open access transmission tariff. Uh, and the major por portion of this is Pacific Core would transfer assets to Idaho Power. So BPA's Southeast Idaho load currently served from Pacific Core system would move to Idaho Power system. Uh, the proposed ownership structure in the prior arrangement was Pacific Core holding 54.55% share. Idaho Power 21.21% and BPA 24.24%. Under the revised B2H with transfer service unquote structure, Idaho Power would own a 45% share and Pacific Core would hold a 55% share. BPA is accepting public comment on this proposed role in the project from January 19th to February 18th at bpa.com. BPA will host a workshop February 1st to discuss the proposal. Links are in the show notes to both BPA's website with a non-binding agreement and letter to the region uh, and to clearing ups, clearing ups article covering the topic. Written by Dan Catchpole. Good job, Dan. Good job, Dan. I did and doing some due diligence for this. And at Robert's recommendation, I reached out to mutual friend and friend of the underground who is helpful for this purpose because he's the general manager of Idaho Falls Power, uh, Bear Prairie. And I got the following con uh, comment, quote, glad there's continued collaboration in the region between BPA and other regional transmission service providing utilities to bring solutions that improve reliability and access to markets and resources. This creative solution to a long-time complex problem. This is this is a creative solution to a long-time and complex problem. Uh, there are a lot of details and moving parts to think about in this proposed structure that we are currently working through here in Eastern Idaho. Unquote. Thanks for the comment, Bear. Thanks for being a friend of the underground. Anything interesting here, Jason or Robert, that you want to dig a little bit deeper into? It's a it is some pretty big news. I'll yeah. I'll echo Bear's comment. I mean the. The transfer service to the Southern Idaho loads that Bonneville serves has been a, a real conundrum for many, many years, decades even. And, and this is a really creative solution that proposes to solve at least part of that, that problem set. Uh, but, but to Bear's point, you know, there are just a bunch of details baked into this term sheet and, and it, uh, it poses as many questions as it answers. And so a lot of us in particular, those of us who uh, also have uh, forecast uh, transmission service requests in Bonneville's uh, transmission queue are very interested in how Bonneville anticipates uh, utilizing these assets and, and uh, how that will work through the queue process. So I think it's very much a uh, to be determined set of questions and, and that list of questions that all of us have are probably going to grow over the next few weeks. Yeah, I haven't made it through the term sheet yet. I've written, read through the letter to the region. Um, and we asked actually a question that got prompted by reading through that letter to John Harrison in the interview coming up later in the show. So stick around. Uh, we do mention it. We don't let it uh, go by um, without commenting. Anything, Jason, that you wanted to know? I One of the things that Dan Catchpole 
articulates in his article is that it does leave 400 megawatts of east to west transmission capacity unallocated in this new arrangement. Um, mm-hmm. Anything you that you can in, give insight into, Jason, on the reporting? Yeah, I'm not sure how that unused capacity will work out. Uh, you know, the big focus was BPA uh, pulling out of the ownership agreement. Uh, I think they had discussed this previously, so it wasn't entirely a, a surprise. And, um, you know, as far as uh, with the asset exchanges and Idaho Power, it'll give Idaho Power transmission access to Nevada and uh, increase specific Pacific Core's power transfer c- capability uh, east to west. So, yeah, just a couple observations there. Yeah. I'm really curious if anybody is willing to prognosticate whether this change in ownership makes it more likely that B2H comes on online. Anybody willing to prognosticate? I believe in the tweet that uh, that noted this, uh, that Clearing Up did, that had the expected commercial operation date for the line is 2026, I want to say. Anybody know if I'm remembering that right? Yes, June 1st. Yes. Anybody want to prognosticate on whether this makes it more or less likely that that they hit their commercial operation date? Anybody? Anybody? Gillery, you want to prognosticate? Robert's not taking me up on it. I don't um, I'm I'm skeptical of any prognostication on transmission builds. But that's the wise. That's the wise stance. Yeah. You just want to flip a coin, Gillery? Over under? <laughs> over under? Nothing. Gillery's he's just not not taking me up on it. Under. That's what the coin under. said. Okay. Quote me. <laughs> what the candy cane said i don't have a coin <laughs> okay paul well we're ready for the typewriter all right aaron you got the next story great nuclear power generation continues to get coverage in 2022 last tuesday alone the associated press published two articles both of them are linked in the show notes Both highlight fission technologies. The next generation of nuclear power plants to be built are likely to be based on new designs. The article titled Majority of U.S. States Pursue Nuclear Power for Emission Cuts, authored by Jennifer McDermott, does a helpful rundown of the state of technology development. For friends of the underground that are only occasionally following the news on this, here's a refresher. The Advanced Nuclear Reactor Project Grant PUD, Energy Northwest, and X Energy are partnering on called the Tri-Energy Partnership is a Generation 4 high-temp gas-cooled nuclear reactor that uses tri-structural isotropic or triso particle, uh, particle, that's the part I messed up on, particle fuel. (laughs) Particular fuel. Um, uh, UAMP's project with new scale called the Carbon Free Power Project is a small modular reactor that uses light water cooling for the core. And the advanced nuclear project proposed in Wyoming, the Bill Gates one, is a joint project between TerraPower and GE Hitachi Nuclear Energy, which uses a combination of an advanced sodium fast reactor with a molten salt based thermal energy storage technology. These are a few of the half dozen designs the NRC is expecting to be submitted for advanced reactors, which use something other than water to cool the core, such as gas, liquid metal, or molten salt. Special thanks to Energy News Digest's Joel Meyer and Klatskin IPUD's Mark Farmer for pointing us to the articles. Great stuff here. I, uh, I, I am just learning these different types of nuclear technologies and trying to orient myself to the different projects in the region. Uh, there is a really good 
uh, like explainer on the three advanced reactor systems to watch by 2030 in on energy.gov, the DOE put it out, the Office of Nuclear Energy. I found it was really helpful. Um, I don't think it's, it's probably not out of date yet. Is it, Robert, in 2021? Do you think nuclear technology is advancing so fast that it's out of date? six months later, 10 months later, I don't know, somewhere in there. Uh, no, no, Paul, I think that's actually literally impossible because the NRC permitting and review process uh, is so lengthy uh, that, that the applicants actually have to bake in the technology they're submitting because it's a multi-year process to walk through that. I believe New Scale's been at the NRC for a handful of years at least and uh, you know probably have another handful to go. And they're probably one of the furthest along in that regulatory process. Um, you know, my my uh, my off the cuff question in all these uh, conversations is, um, I look forward to the day when Wall Street will put commercial paper on one of these. And, uh, you know, we probably all have colleagues and friends who've been involved in existing or, or potential uh, projects like this, including the ones in the South that have been rather troubled the last few years. And um, I, I think the challenge is that, that these things just don't get built on time, on budget, uh, and, and in a frame of reference that is uh, what, what commercial paper would support. And, and so the, the need for government loan guarantees and other things is, is critical to the emergence of any of these technologies. Um, but it is very much a, an R&D play at this point. Yeah, it's almost it's it's R and D, but it's all, all like permitting play, right? You you have to have such an advanced design. It's like we actually I went for a tour of the new scale facility just uh, a couple weeks ago, and it's I was actually struck by it's mainly mechanical engineering. Uh, all of this, all the permitting, it's it's really it's per, it's designing the thermodynamic system to deal with the nuclear reaction. Uh, the nuclear reaction is like not what the majority of this engineering is based on. It's all the systems and stuff. I, I was, it was yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I, I got a chance to go through CGS a few years back yeah. uh, while they're doing a refueling. And in my experience, it is the most impressive example of electrical and mechanical engineering that exists on this planet. Um, that said, it is. <laughs> It is also an incredibly complex way to generate power. Yeah. Um, and, and it obviously has certain risks, uh, risks that have, uh, you know, both national security as well as just regular old safety uh, factors to it. So, you know, I, I wish them all well. I, I hope they are successful. Uh, we need diversity of supply in many respects. Um, but I also acknowledge that there are reasonable concerns that many have uh, around these technologies. Also, just note that uh, it, it, it's often forgotten or ignored in these conversations that the Navy has been operating a fleet of reactor-powered vessels reliably and safely for many, many years. Yeah, and not the you know it's not like a CGS reactor either. It's like it's it's like a small modular reactor. It's a, it's the inspiration for New Scale's design is the submarines. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if any of the new technologies will gain more acceptance in California, of course, you know, completely hostile to nuclear power here, Diablo Canyon going away in a few years and shuttering everything. So it's hard to make 
headways in this state with nuclear, but you never know. Never know. I, I, I follow on Twitter. Uh, I'm, Energy Twitter is a wonderful place with lots of different perspectives. Mm-hmm. At Isodope is a great follow <laughs> for uh, all of the like, uh, it's like next generation nuclear advocates where there it's 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 hilarious there's great isa dope merch um makes it making making fission cool again you know (laughs) gotta make fission cool again i did want to add a follow-up so on our holiday special we did a fission versus fusion prognostication i'm curious where y'all stand on Fission, the technology we use today, or fusion. I'm just going to go down the list if you're willing to take a stand. Robert, fission or fusion? Uh, fission in the next 20 years, fusion in 50 years plus. You think 50 years plus? You think we may be able to unlock fusion? I believe that the modeling capability that we are starting to see come out in that area is on an accelerated curve. And the understand that the, the confluence of our ability to computer model rather than having to build giant expensive toroids and the um, improvements in material sciences and, and the engineering around it, I think is going to cross over uh, probably sometime in the next 20, 30 years. And then we'll be in a place to start actually building something that's energy positive. But I, I think it's probably multi-decade allowed. Do you think fusion may be the ticket to uh, interstellar travel or like, is that the ticket? I think that's a whole nother topic. Oh um, man, I uh, want to get into that topic someday. As, that's as a, a adjacent. Science that's, fiction geek. I, I could go there right now. Yeah, yeah that's totally public power adjacent. Guillory, fission or fusion? Uh, Flip your coin. Well, I actually, I so I have a peer who works for an up and coming AI startup and their focus is actually around bringing nuclear fusion into fruition. So oh. it, it sounded very interesting. There was a lot that I will admit went over my head, but for that reason, I will say fusion. You're betting on a friend. <laughs> You're betting on a friend, friend with fusion. Jason, are you willing to stake a claim here? Fission, fusion. You know, that's some really good commentary I just heard, but I, I guess fusion, you know, I'm hearing more about it and um, it, it's obviously a, a technology path that's being pursued. So I guess I'd have to go with that. Okay. I'm more the fission side of things. I think our, our, our need is this 20 year range. If you can just get something, I think new scales 2029 uh, where they think they can be commercial eye operating with small modular reactors, man, that'd be nice. That'd be nice to get some more, uh, carbon-free power on the grid. Okay. I think we're, I think, I think I said dope takes us actually a really good segue to the next one. All right, Paul, give me the typewriter and you're up next. Okay. In dispatches from energy Twitter, Riley Brennan found at handle Riley Brennan uh, at Riley Brennan published a full thread on electric vehicle, public charging site selection. You know, this is a topic the underground loves to cover as with all good tweets it had some great hooks including the claim that some electric vehicle public charging locations have a pay uh, payback on day one his thread highlights some good and interesting site selection and summarize it all with in twitter fashion with quote pick a site with high usage high demand low tariff and maximized incentives checklist 
check them all off. In the kicker of the thread, down where only nerdy people like me uh, tread, there is a link to a website that will generate a quote unquote site report for a per report fee of $499. Um, the report reportedly provides a comprehensive data set that will estimate the location's revenue based on the charger type. Um, it also provides uh, like the load analysis for the site, which is incredibly use useful for electric utility enthusiasts like us. You can find more at the site uh, called at www.stable.auto. That's not a .com, it's a .auto, stable.auto. I is not endorsed by Paul. I did not do a site report. I did not pay the $500. I do think it's interesting for rural communities to have a better understanding of the generate the revenue they can generate at these locations. Um, and I'm curious to get some other people's takes on this because uh, for me, I just geek out on this and I find it incredibly useful. You know, Paul, I can add a, a couple of uh, maybe professional and personal notes. Um, yes, please do. Professionally, in my last role, I, I did have the program management team that was deploying uh, the fast EV chargers for Seattle City Light. So you you were part of the team because you are one of the few utilities like Klatskin IPUD that actually owns the chargers and has deployed the rate strategies to be utilized at those. Yeah. I didn't know it was you, though. Uh, it was not me. I, I had people in my team who were doing the work. Uh, I, I just take credit for it. But yes, yes, the, of uh, course. The, the the challenges are incredibly complex. Uh, even as a department of the city, working with our our uh, sister departments in utilizing the right of ways, getting the permitting, eventually deploying the equipment, working with the third party vendor partners on that, uh, and then um, you know perhaps not seeing the uptake or utilization rates that you might hope, or that even came close to matching the rate design assumptions. Uh, it's a very challenging set of problems. And, and then I'll just note, and, and we can touch on it later in the discussion, but when you think about the EV-centric future that many people talk about, uh, the, the city of Seattle doesn't need to deploy six fast EV chargers over the course of the year. It needs to be doing that weekly or monthly across the entire footprint. And, and doing that type of work at scale probably exceeds the ability of a, of a you know, more traditional electric utility to, to deliver. And so there's going to be a partnership with the third parties uh, that's going to be required. But frankly, the, the existing permitting right-of-way management and other structures is going to make this very, very challenging. Yeah, there's a work stream here. There is a market opportunity here. And I tell you what, the business case and the, the work stream, they aren't gonna cross for a while, right? A lot of this, like our, our approach, Kachapu's approach, is this is a strategic decision. You can't expect uh, to have your rate methodology working year one because you don't have adoption. It's a strategic play to try to overcome burdens to adoption so you can get more revenue. I think we are advantaged as electric utilities that we do get a lot of that revenue not at the charger site. If you have increased adoption of electric vehicles in your service territory, you are getting revenue from charging at home. And if you can do it at lower speeds at home, if you can convince them to do it at a 120 outlet at home instead of a 240 outlet, maybe it can be uh, good for you and good for your business model. Yeah. I have well, whole and, theories here, Robert. I have whole theories. Well, we, we, we should dive into them someday because I think, you know, for me, the, the thing to keep in mind about electrification is 
if you look at it holistically, where it's not just individual mobility, but fleet mobility, and then you layer in building electrification, uh, which is really a deep revenue opportunity for utilities, the total package does provide you a future of revenue growth and load growth that might otherwise uh, not exist. Yeah. Yeah, I, this is an incredibly interesting topic. Erin uh, Guillory is a subscriber to our Plug Pass program. She she commutes from Portland to Klatskanai on electric charging, uses subscription, fixed rate charge, beautiful rate design, isn't it, Guillory? Are you happy with your Plug Pass subscription? Oh, I am. I went to pay from paying about three hundred and eighty a month, three hundred and eighty dollars a month in gas. I traded that for a higher car payment and uh, a fixed charging rate for a month. And I so have it's like 60 for the weekends. It's fantastic. It's like 60, 60 bucks, bucks. A, 60 bucks a month, right? Yeah. Somewhere in there. Yeah. It's Pretty great. Exactly. Yeah. Love this stuff. <laughs> Love this stuff. I know I, you said you had some personal anecdotes, Robert. I don't know if we have time for them, but you want a high level. You want to give us the, the promo sure. view? So uh, my, my wife and I took the long weekend and went up to Whidbey Island with an all electric RV from PacWestie. And I think it's the first in the country, if not the world. Uh, and and uh, it, it's sort of a, uh, if you Google Tofino, uh, it'll pop up the, uh, it was originally a, a liquid fuel vehicle that they've converted to electric. Um, unfortunately, the range it came with was about 150 miles on the dial, uh, which as anybody who's driven an EV in winter knows is aspirational. Um, and Whidbey Island is still very, very rural and does not have a lot of charging infrastructure. Um, and I'll just say that the uh, 50 amp circuit at the campground we were staying at uh, was perhaps not the uh, most recent installation of a 50 amp circuit yeah. uh, because we were tripping the breaker on that pretty frequently. Um, and, and so I, I just say that my, my quick takeaway is that we're probably another 150 mile range away from it being a reliable recreational vehicle approach. Uh, at, at 150 miles uh, each day, we were having to sort of plot out our day and make sure that we didn't get uh, stuck somewhere. Um, but if it had 300 mile range, we would have been fine. Uh, we would have had a nice buffer, no range anxiety, et cetera. So I think yeah. it's getting there probably a few years away. Yeah. And I just Googled Pac Westy and it is, it's this is hashtag van life van, not we're the Millers van. Uh, it's it's as a yeah. VW. This is vintage. This is it looks aw- it looks super cool. It's a little unfortunate it has 150 miles of range because that sure would make it hard. Absolutely. Yeah. We were just um, in our staff meeting this morning. Uh, David Kraus was talking about uh, California Energy Commission forecasting. And apparently up to this point, they've not been modeling EVs in their forecasts, which are used by uh, Cal ISO uh, for some very direct decision-making. So that's kind of interesting, but um, beginning to look at that and, uh, you know, we have a pretty rickety grid here. I, I do have questions how we're going to handle all these EVs along with just normal demand growth. Yeah. One answer to that, Jason, is um, time of day rates where you incent EV charging uh, during the off-peak periods. I know that that's part of Seattle's long-term strategic plan uh, to start moving EV charging into an evening or you know light load hour uh, periods when there is available capacity on the system, 
and uh, where you're really not having to do massive system reinforcements to meet those loads. Sure, yeah, there's a lot of efforts under similar efforts underway in California. You know, it's you're, you're still it's human behavior. You know, you can, it's going to be what it is. Um, but hopefully that that nailed down that problem because that, that's a pretty substantial one. Yeah, I didn't know you were a time of use rates uh, proponent, Robert. I don't know. We we may have to have a much deeper conversation on that someday. Absolutely, anytime. Okay. Okay, All right. let's do it. Well, well, Paul, we're ready for the typewriter again. And, and Aaron, you've got the next story. All right. The California Public Utilities Commission, frequently shortened to CPUC, is considering a proposal to restructure its net energy metering policy through a net energy metering revisit rulemaking known as NEM 3.0. Uh, NEM 3.0 was initiated in August 2020 and is based on an earlier CPUC decision, which California Energy Markets covered in issue 1633. The intent of the roughly 200-page proposed decision issued December 13th is to provide incentives for both residential and commercial customers to invest in distributed energy resources without passing the costs of the current net metering policy on to non-DE. DER customers. The current policy known as NEM 2.0 compensates DER customers at the per kilowatt hour retail rate for all the energy their systems serve back to the grid. Among the changes proposed in NEM 3.0 is the creation of a grid participation charge that is based on the size of the solar system installed. The monthly rate for residential customers is $8 per kilowatt. The public comment period for NEM 3.0 ended January 14th, and 30 comments from official inventor interveners have been published by the CPUD, CPUC, since January. <laughs> We'd love to take credit for that now. Uh, by the CPUC since January 7th, including from unions, energy trade, and environmental groups, investor-owned utilities, the public advocates, the Public Advocates Office and organizations ranging from Walmart to the California Farm Bureau Federation. To learn more, you can find coverage of all things California energy related in California energy markets. Linda Daly Paulson and Abigail Sawyer, this is very exciting, wrote an article in last week's edition called CPUC Net Metering Proposal Draws Fire and Support Among Commenters. And our own Jason Fordney, hey, covered the topic in his bottom lines this week. As always, you don't have to be subscribed to news data to get uh, public power underground, but it sure makes public power underground make a lot more sense if you do. Yeah, um, thanks for pointing out my editorial. I decided to wade into this with a little trepidation. Um, and I don't know that we want too much of that hot takes on public power underground. Okay. It's okay. This, this is hot. No, no, no. I was just kidding. I was just kidding. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's some. There's some fire on this topic. Yeah. Right, isn't there? I can't think of, I mean, we have a lot of political or passion focused uh, debates in this industry, but wow. I mean, and, you know, as I pointed out in the editorials, it's just um, there seems to be a pretty large amount of what I'd call sort of obfuscation here, you know, uh, IOUs and the CPUC teaming up to kill rooftop solar even some of the mainstream uh, news reporting on it has, you know, headlines uh, or, or leads saying, you know, the CPUC is taking aim at, at rooftop solar. There's a lot more nuances to this. 
Um, you have groups like the Utility Reform Network, which is uh, the opposite of an IOU support group um, calling for change. You know, uh, there, there's just so many issues to it. And, you know, a lot of rooftop owners built their systems and financed their systems with the assumptions of getting paid yeah. uh, the status quo. Um, the grid participation charge, I think the average is about $58 a month. Um, but yeah, on Twitter, you know, once Arnold Schwarzenegger got involved with the editorial in the New York Times, which again, uh, to me, sort of skinned the surface, and then Edward Norton. So we had the Terminator and the Incredible Hulk. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then for some reason, Mark Ruffalo, who also played the, the Hulk, um, called out Ralph Cavana from NRDC by name to 7.8 million Twitter followers and said, hey, go give him a hard time. So yeah, just, it's a wild one. Yeah, all so, opinions are Jason Fortney's. Yes, yeah. Jason, I'll, I'll just share that I think part of the dynamic here is that there is truth on all sides of this. Yeah. It, it is true that residential rooftop solar would not exist without substantial subsidies. It is true that a lot of those subsidies come from all the other customers through rate design. And in that context, uh, there is an incredibly unequitable impact to the way net metering is deployed, uh, not just in California, but all over the planet, including in other states nearby where some of us work and live. Uh, yeah. and this, is, this is a contentious topic. And I mean, yeah. I, I can remember raising this uh, with the Energy Coalition half a dozen years ago in a meeting in Idaho and mm -hmm. you would have thought I did something incredibly impolite by raising the question of the equity impacts of net energy metering policies. And there is still not an answer to this day to that issue. Uh, but I give the CPUC credit for being willing to take on a very contentious issue. And, and it is something that has to be solved. Uh, the, the equity context is very painful. Uh, the the cross-subsidization is very painful. And the simple fact is, if we want a reliable grid, everybody's got to have skin in that game. Sure. Yeah, I think I come to it from, you know, I, we do rate design here for a small rural utility and a bunch of our costs for the distribution system when I started were covered through the energy rate. And effectively, we've been shifting a lot of those costs to a base charge because they are not based on a volumetric usage basis, right? And the, the, the thing that California is doing that probably is the most distasteful, uh, these are my, Paul's commentary, not Clats Connect Beauties, uh, is you're doing it just for the customers, just for this one set of customers, not for everybody, because the utilization of grid access applies to all customers, not just if you're using solar. Uh, that's where I land on, hey, we, this is an understanding of how you get electricity and a fixed component of these charges that aren't volumetric. Yeah, and you're right. This, there's almost a religious zeal around this topic. Um, you know, the view being anything that impedes solar whatsoever is uh, a bad thing. But, you know, when you're talking about cost allocations and grid planning, you just you can't be that simplistic about it. And you have to look at the source of who's in opposition. You know, a lot of them are uh, associations or companies, clean energy companies, people that draw paychecks uh, from the solar industry. And if you look at the income 
you know, 28% of home solar owners, 28% make more than $150,000 a year. So, and, uh, you know, th there's no doubt that if you're driving an EV, you have a Tesla battery in your house and solar panels, you're probably not an inner city renter, you know? So some valid, valid arguments there, but. Um, you know, Jason, that, that is one of the biggest, toughest nuts to crack in, in the brief time that I, I had the solar programs for Seattle, getting program deployment to renters or others who do not own the roof is incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. Yep. There's a, there's, some programs underway at the CPUC to address that. That's why I, you know, I just, the notion that the IOUs conspired with the CPUC to kill off rooftop solar is just, a, just a, you know, kind of a facile argument to me. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear your, your, your viewpoints on it. They're, they're uh, very, you know, succinct and um, you have a good understanding of it. And I'm, I'm still learning about it too. I don't have an opinion on the CPUC proposal my editorial is more about just the, the conversation. Let's have an honest conversation about this and, and stop vilifying anybody that has, raises any questions about it. Yeah. Yeah. We're running out of time. We better. Well, oh, sorry. Well, well said, Jason. Thank yeah. you. And uh, with that, typewriter, Paul. And I'll run down a quick story out of Seattle City Light to bring it home. So Seattle City Light published an electrification assessment January 20th that provides analysis on the energy needed for the electrification of buildings, transportation, and commercial and industrial applications within City Light service territory. The study focuses on load and distribution elements of wide-scale electrification. It does not address the potential for energy savings through conservation or demand response. It also does not address City Light's generation resources and transmission needs, nor the cost to achieve electrification. The technical report was completed by EPRI, the Electric Power Research Institute, and is available on Seattle City Lights Powerlines blog. You can find the link in the show notes below. Uh, you know, I just want to start, Paul, by giving a little shout out to David Logsdon, uh, who is the director of that team, and to Stephanie Johnson, a, a colleague and friend, uh, who did the heavy, heavy lifting on that work. Uh, Uzma Siddiqui uh, working on the grid management and, and uh, related issues. They've, they've just done an amazing body of work in this space. And, and they and the rest of their team, uh, Madeline and, and others, are, are doing great work in growing into this field. And, and I think that, that what, what's really important is that this is the narrow edge of what could be a very substantial wedge of the future of the power business. And if we believe that we need to decarbonize uh, the generation portfolio, uh, this is what will do that. It's, it's moving uh, liquid fuel use to electrification. It's moving buildings to electrified heat and cooling. It's going deep decarbonization or deep uh, energy efficiency on, on the building envelopes themselves, uh, not, not just light bulbs anymore. And so there, there is a body of work uh, that is likely to grow in our industry um, but I think that what's also important is that everyone is not similarly situated. And as I yeah. am, uh, and, you know, one month in to my tenure with Umatil Electric, uh, you know, an, an Eastern Oregon cooperative, uh, customer base interest needs are not those of the city of Seattle. And, yeah. and so I think one of the things that we as an industry are going to have to explore here is what these, uh, I'll just call them generically, different types of initiatives or, or growth potentials look like in di very different contexts. What, what's your experience been, Paul? 
Yeah. So I actually find that to be the most interesting study uh, review of these studies is thinking through because eWeb's done one, Seattle City Lights, a lot of the utilities are now doing these electrification studies. And I do think about the difference for an urban setting of electrification versus a rural setting. And they're probably different um different applications of the same data. And there are probably ways to translate Seattle City's light story and, and view it through a Klatskin IPUD lens, which um, is, is how I'll end up viewing these type of articles. I do think the transportation electrification hot take, I think it'll be more impactful for rural communities than it will be for urban communities because there is more uh, mass transit opportunity for urban communities and electrification of that will be probably I won't say easier, it's all gonna be hard, but uh, more efficient than in rural communities, you'll still maintain this kind of disparate transportation methods, which you'll have be less efficient and more impactful. Um, and, and I really think industrial electrification um, is just, just a topic that I have so much interest in, is so complicated and is so technically specific to the type of industrial load. Um, and that's where I go when I look at these studies. I think it's super fascinating. I'm glad people are doing them. I'll, I'll tell you that one of the more impressive uses, uh, retail uses of electricity that I experienced in my 14 years at Seattle uh, was going to the Newcore Steel Mill and getting in the control room when they began a melt. And they, for those who aren't familiar, they take rail cars of scrap metal and they run it into a big pot and and run anodes into it and it is pyroclastic it is big and loud and incredibly energetic and what was fascinating to me is that the majority of the energy in that is actually chemically generated by the process it's not just oh. the electricity the electric kicks it off and gets it going but but i think it was 60 percent of the actual net energy of the 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 melt uh, comes from the chemical reactions so it's it's really fascinating how that stuff works uh, when it works very well. Yeah, they they run an amazing facility. It's it's really the kind of thing that if you ever get a chance to see something like that, take it. I'm putting it on my list: CGS and Nucor. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, you you mentioned rural areas, um, Paul. Like uh, where I live, I just we have PSPSs all the time. We we had people here without power for five weeks um, from the storms. I there's going to have to be some serious grid improvements to electrify transportation. And on the on the residential side, there's an interest, interesting point PGE recently made at a CPUC workshop that if a neighborhood wants to electrify, everybody in that neighborhood had, has to agree. If one out of 100 customers wants to stay on gas, they have to keep that gas infrastructure there because of the obligation to serve requirement yeah. in California. So you'd probably have to change that. Yeah. Well, or, or you need to think a little differently about how you deploy it, right? I mean, you know, Jason, there, there are other ways that PG&E's gas business could deliver gas if you had one customer in a hundred. Um, yeah. as, as someone who lives on an island uh, when I'm not in Hermiston, uh, mm -hmm. We do not have natural gas service. Uh, I have a propane truck roll up to my house once or twice a year and, and deliver the liquid fuels that I use as a backup fuel. No, no, th that's a great point. And, you know, possibly there's other ways to serve that one customer. I just got me thinking, you know, would you have to keep a pipeline in service? What, 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 what would you have to do to maintain service? And maybe there's other ways. 
Uh, I think there are probably some options there, but all right, well, that's it. Let's hit the typewriter and move on. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Matt Schrotnig and Paul Dockery's interview with Bonneville Power Administration's Chief Executive Officer and Administrator, John Hairston. Take it away, Paul. Okay. Uh, before we go to the interview, we're going to do uh, a promo for Northwest Public Power Association because they believe in public power. For 82 years, NWPPA has supported public power utilities and their associates in the greater Pacific Northwest by offering education, training, communications, government relations, and services like RFP and job postings. In addition to public power, what else is important to NWPPA? Local control, member needs, integrity, and quality products and services. Today, NWPPA proudly serves 155 member utilities and more than 325 utility industry associate members. Learn more or register for a class at nwppa.org. That's nwppa.org. They believe in public power. Diving in. John, hello. Welcome to Public Power Underground. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. You know, I've heard a lot of great things about the um, the podcast and, and finally got to get on board. I mean, I'm a little disappointed I was down the list, but, you know, I'll take what I can get right now. So appreciate you guys having me. I mean, can you be disappointed? I mean, we got Russ on and Crystal and, and Rachel. I mean, these are these are all stars. Daniel Fisher. And it's not like you're down the list. It's just like, I mean, they're fun people. Well, and we had to work our yeah, way up to yeah. you. We had to earn the right to even ask is the way right. I was looking at it. Yeah, that's the smarter way, Matt. <laughs> we're we're targeting electric utility enthusiasts like us. Our, I mean, you're an electric utility enthusiast, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I can say I, I claim to be that either an enthusiast or fanatic, you know, depending on how my kids look at it. You know, they got the, the dose of the... Um, you know, the system and how great it is for the region every time we drove up and down the Columbia Gorge. So I don't know. Either way you want to call it, fanatic or enthusiast, I'm good. I like both. I like both. Yeah. I'm really, uh, I think I'm both. And my kids get similar doses of enthusiasm whenever we drive by a generator. Yeah. Uh, either a claim to fame or accusation, depending on the context. Uh, I exactly. get them as well. So, um, yeah. So, uh, first of all, I think, uh, or I'd like to, you know, take a moment here because congratulations are in order, John. Uh, January 7th uh, marked your official one-year anniversary as administrator and CEO of Bonneville Power Administration. Congratulations, sir. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. And, you know, and also just really appreciate the, um, you know, the, the, the nice little gifts I got in the mail here, you know. Yes. A little recognition. So, so appreciate it. This is, um, you know, and I will tell you, it's, it's been a blur this this first year. It's been a blur, but it's been a really, um, you know, great experience working with some really great people here at Bonneville. Yeah, great people work with great people. That's what we do in public power every day. It's why we come to work, right? Um, for those for those in the audio, uh, it's the one year's paper anniversary. So we printed out a paper copy of the clearing up front page of the newsletter where your announcement was, nicely framed. Was, I feel I'm really proud of that. It took a lot, John. I think I think you should be proud of that. Yeah, and then you get the 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 wonder weight uh, and Adramus championship belt for the best friends of the underground because you you let people come back and I I appreciate that. So you get the welterweight title. Congratulations. All right, no, appreciate it. I think mine is on the bookshelf behind me. Uh, <laughs> it's possibly my most favorite possession. So um, I do hope you enjoy that. 
Uh, and the the pun with the belt is just, I, I got to tell you, Paul, I know I've said it before, but that is just top. Uh, that's just a, a plus right there, man. Yeah. Uh, it really, I can't take credit for it. You know, it's, it, it's, it's the community of public power inspires some of these great things. Um, you know, back to the matter at hand, John. So uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, nothing at all happened in 2021 during your first year. Um, wait, uh, hold on one second. I'm sorry. I'm, uh, I'm being told that actually a lot happened last year um, uh, at BPA and, and with you, uh, you finalized the record of decision to join the Western EIM. Uh, you maintained grid reliability through wildfires and historic heat wave kicked off the post 2028 provider of choice process, uh, adopted a power rate decrease um, and decided to use uh, the triggering of a reserves distribution clause to reduce power rates um, along with a bunch of other stuff that, you know, we're just not going to mention right here because we don't have the time. Uh, point is, I, I think it goes without saying you deserve a victory lap at this point. And so, you know, please take some credit for our first power rate decrease in over a decade. Yeah, well, hey, you know, I, I really appreciate that. And, and, and like I said, you know, the first year was a blur and all of those things that you just mentioned made it that, right? You know, there's a ton of stuff to really cover. And, you know, the first thing I will say, uh, I've always told our folks that, you know, the only thing I could do after the first day by myself is fail. Uh, this is a team effort, and I've got some really great folks who uh, work hard every day, uh, great public servants who come and make sure that we're bringing value to the region. So I, I, I can't um, tell you how appreciative I am of our team. Um, I've been able to put some folks in some really great positions that I trust and, and really know that they're going to execute um, on the things that we have in front of us. But but yeah, you know, this first year, it's been really about adapting. Um, you know, I always think about when I was in college pledging uh, my fraternity, Kappa Alpha Psi. Um, you know, one of the big brothers would always tell us, improvise, adapt, overcome, and achieve. And, and, and I see it that way. I mean, despite doing all of our work basically virtually, uh, we've been able, you know, since March of 2020, just improvise initially adapt to our environment um, through what we've done in terms of, you know, all of the things you've mentioned, I think overcome some challenges and, and really achieve some great results for the region. Um, you know, I, if I think about just the success we had, it's, it's really twofold. You think about the, the things that we've done before the pandemic, uh, a lot of work on our culture, a lot of work on our continuity, and that, and that paid off, uh, really. Once we got into this, like I said, we made those we took that opportunity to improvise, adapt, uh, overcome, and achieve through our continuity work, but also the culture aspect. Uh, our folks have been able to hold together because we did a lot of work in what it meant to work at BPA, uh, how we should engage with each other, collaborate, and, and that has just tremendously paid off with our workforce. So, you know, I, I really like where we're at, how we've been able to deal with these things, but we're going to continue to learn from this experience. One thing that I understand is that, you know, employees need to be engaged, and we're going to continually work at that, making sure that they feel valued. Uh, we want to be a workplace that, you know, uh, new workers, uh, college graduates prefer. So we're going to look at how we can retain and attract skilled, um, you know, employees in a competitive environment. And, you know, Matt, you, you mentioned the, the rates piece, which is particularly gratifying for me, uh, because if you look at the trend, you look at what we've been able to accomplish. Um, in 2020, um, we looked at the, re the uh, reserves 
uh, surcharge, the financial reserve surcharge. Uh, we had conversations with customers in understanding what folks were going through with the pandemic. Uh, we suspended that. Uh, we followed that up with a uh, rate decrease uh, for our current rates, which, as you said, has been something we hadn't seen in decades. So that's particularly gratifying for me. And then, you know, just recently, the um, application of the reserves distribution clause, uh, which returns about $3.7 million back to customers during 2022. I, I, I think all of those have been really tremendous achievements by our team collectively. And, you know, of course, um, you know, I throw in there the decision to join the EIM as one of the highlights for the year. Um, I thought that was a tremendously important decision. It wasn't easy. We got plenty of feedback from customers. But at the end, I think we made the right decision for not only Bonneville and its customers, but for the region. And so, um, you know, you lock those in, you talk about borrowing authority, um, our ability, um, our success in increasing our borrowing authority by $10 billion this year. That was a collective effort. We worked with public power to get that across the line. Um, in our, in, you know, NRU, PPC, um, you know, PNGC, all of those, you know, customers and, and customer groups worked with us to get that across the line. So I look, I really enjoy those collaborative efforts, and I think that's going to bring benefits to the region for years to come. Uh, but at the same time, that doesn't give us a blank check, right? Um, you know, I hear customers saying, Bonneville, we don't want you to have this blank check. We want to work on cost control, things of that nature. And then that's, that's what we're going to continue to do. Uh, we're going to be very careful about how we make these investments, making sure that we invest in the right assets at the right time. And, you know, through our financial plan refresh, <clears throat> we're, we're really giving voice to our customers and listening to ensure that we have the right policies to maintain prudent debt levels for the long term. Uh, I think a great example of that is what we just announced yesterday in respect to B2H. Um, that proposal yeah. with Idaho Power and Pacific Corps, um, I think, is a really good, clear step in that direction. You know, rather than being part owner, uh, we're proposing to um, purchase transmission service on the line to serve our Southeast Idaho customers in a more reliable, economical manner. Um, and I really believe that at the end of the day, this construction of this line would um, not only provide significant benefits to the region, but it was going to also enable this long-term firm power and transmission service to our customers um, that we've been seeking. Uh, you know, we've been wanting to do this in a cost-effective manner. And so this, um, you know, and I've caveated with the fact that we just signed a term sheet, so it's not binding, but it's moving in the right direction. And I, and I really feel good about that. Yeah. I, you know, you started the conversation with culture. And then I think as you go through the list of accomplishments, it speaks to the culture that's been developed, right? The the discipline about cost controls, bending the cost curve down, speaks to the power, um, you know, reserves distribution, clause going back to power. It speaks to the rate decrease. Um, and one of the areas I was really curious about, because you took over, um, during the pandemic and to maintain that culture remotely in a lot of instances, how, how, how do you do it? Like what, any, any tips for like maintaining disciplined culture remotely, anything looking back on your first year that you are proud of in culture preservation? Yeah. You know, I would specifically speak to what our managers have been able to do uh, because 
you know, when you go through something like this pandemic, uh, you know, you, your workforce is dispersed. And so you have to have some knitting there to make sure that they come back together, um, they're able to execute on the mission, know how they connect to that mission. And so managers play a key role. And, and we put in place some managerial behaviors that I think have been effective, um, okay. you know, valuing our people, uh, coming together around decisions, making sure that we connect to the mission, um, sticking to priorities, uh, listening more than talking, uh, you know, passing on information when, you know, it's important. And then also this con- what we call a considerate done kind of ethic where, you know, when we have that conversation and we lay out the outline for what we need to have done, you know, we can consider that done. We know we can count and trust on our teammate to get that done. And, you know, when you employ those behaviors, um, I found that, you know, it, it allows our employees to understand where they're at, you know, in this space, you know, during a pandemic and be yeah. able to then, you know, really contribute in a, a, a real productive manner. Um, and they also understand how things are being done. So that really lends itself to its culture, to our culture. And it's, and it's maintained pretty, um, it's been maintained pretty strong, I think, throughout the pandemic. I really like that considerate done talking point because it does take trust, especially in remote working. You have to have trust in your your coworkers, colleagues that it's done. You got to. I, I like that framework. It's good. I wanted to follow up on B2H um, a little bit because it, it is news. So we're taping this on January 20th. That news came out January 19th. Um, and one of the things in the letter to the region uh, that w- was the reason for reconsidering was that the, there were complexities involved with ownership of land and assets by federal and non-federal parties. How, how much, it seems like it was multifaceted, but can you speak to that a little bit? It was in the letter and I, I kind of stood out to me as uh, maybe an interesting thing to dig a little deeper. Yeah, so, you know, I, I think pretty simple, uh, simply put is that, when you're dealing with the federal government, um, you know, there's a lot of things along the lines of permitting and, you know, you have folks who are not wanting things in their backyard. Um, and what you find is that there might be um, more efficient paths to being able to get approval, et cetera. And so one of the things we considered was, you know, what was our ability to move things forward given our federal um, position? And, you know, whether or not it was going to take additional time to get through that permitting process, opposed to having someone like Idaho Power be able to deal with it at the state level. And so that was a consideration that we had as we, you know, kind of looked at how do we package a potential path forward here that will not only be, you know, effective for the region, but also, you know, be relatively uh, quick in being able to get to some decisions, some understandings of where we're at. Um, in meeting all of the regulations that are out there. So I, I think there's an opportunity there um, in respect to the time it takes to go through this process and who needs to be, you know, quote unquote, the lead sled dog there. Um, but, you know, the one thing I will say is that it's been, since I've been in this role, um, being able to watch our team come up with answers, potential answers for this um, has been, you know, something I think special. Uh, you look at where we had been, because this has been, you know, 10, 10 years in the making, right? Uh, so there's been a lot of advanced work. We just hadn't been able to line up things correctly. But I think being able to sit down and, and bring my own new perspective to it, as well as listen to what, you know, the other partners um, value, I, I really believe we've gotten to a point where, 
you know, everyone can kind of feel good about the outcome because it addresses their needs. And, and so for us, um, being able to provide firm power and transmission service um, to our customers at a low cost um, was vitally important. Uh, but there are also, you know, important things in terms of just not creating problems, not creating additional congestion problems or things of that nature through potential asset transfers, et cetera, that I think we solved. I like it. I think uh, um, uh, being public service, of course, we don't we don't bet, but um, just curious if you'd be willing to make a prediction, shall, you, shall we say, as to uh, uh, when we'll see energized. When will the, the line itself be be done in the ground and, and energized and ready to roll? Well, you know, I, I'm not probably willing to go out. And, and, <laughs> oh, and Matt tried. Matt tried. But, <laughs> but I will say this. I am I am really optimistic about where we're at, and you know I'm just really looking forward to taking this next step um, and getting something nailed down contractually so we understand what's in front of us, and then we can kind of then lay out you know what is the path forward for you know internet and getting it energized. But um, you know one step at a time for me right now. I'm really you know like I said proud of our team as well as the teams at Pacific Core in Idaho and being able to work. Um, out something to get us to this point, and I look forward to the next steps. Yeah, yeah I will. I, I think I think we do as well. And I will uh, put a promo in links in the show notes to both the term sheet and uh, News Data has got an article about this. I've told this is Thursday. The News Data story, clearing up story will come out on Friday. I'm told that uh, there'll be a story in there and link will be in the show notes. So we got all the context you need, workshops coming up, right, John, that we can put public comments in. Love it. Now, now John, we got to uh, we got to take a break for capitalism here. Um, wanted to ask if you're willing to chat a little bit more with us about uh, Bonneville's workforce, hydro operations, uh, maybe some public power adjacent stuff when we get back. Um, certainly, am willing to do that. Um, the one question I did have is that you know, can you can be still considered as the underground if you're now part of the corporate machine? Well, news data is owned by Rural Light, another public power organization, you know. So, uh, but um, I, yes, I'm just going to say yes because I can. So, yeah, I'm yeah. still underground. Still underground. So far as yeah, I can tell, it's it's, it's little... totally up to Paul anyway. So, yeah, I just I, Paul, whatever <laughs> I want. <laughs> All right, thanks, John. Uh, we'll be back here in a second. Thanks, Paul, and thanks to John for joining the underground. The rest of the interview will be published next week. You can hear Matt and Paul ask John questions about hydro operations, organizational realignment, and expanding workforce to meet the needs of wide-scale electrification. For now, we're TLDRing our way through the news in a segment we're calling The Spark. The name comes from the friend of the underground, Chris Allen. If you have a name for the segment you'd like us to try, send us a note. And send us a note with a screenshot of the five-star review you gave us on Apple Podcasts. That's how you get a vote. Five stars. Robert, have you given us a five star? Uh, have you given us five stars yet on Apple Podcasts? I, I watch the underground on YouTube, actually. You can see you, got, you still got a friend with an I'm, iPhone. I'm, I'm one of the I'm one of the subscribers on YouTube. I very much appreciate that. But you got a friend with an iPhone. You have an iPhone. Or, so you, Jason, do you, have you given us a five star review yet? I got two iPhones. Yes, on if, get on both of them and give us five stars. Come on, give us some comments. Let's do I'll it. Anyway. Uh, Guillory, you ready for a new segment? Uh, you ready? Let's do it. Okay. This is The Spark, where we do short summaries of energy news to spark your interest. Thank you, Chris uh, Allen. I'm Paul Dockery. 
And I'm Erin Guillory. And we're sparking your interest. interest. You wanted to go way slower than I did. Yeah, I was trying to make sure you caught up. Scientists have long known that ocean conditions and the impact those conditions have on Columbia Basin salmon vary widely from year to year. The effects of climate change and marine heat waves are adding even more uncertainty to an already murky picture. Top ocean scientists met with state, tribal, and federal fish managers on January 19th for an afternoon of presentation and discussions about those uncertainties during the Ocean and Plume Science and Management Forum. More than 130 people attended the four-hour virtual session. And next up, we have an Idaho Department of Fishing game biologist counting about 30 dead steelhead in the Dwarshack Dam tail race on December 23rd, a day after someone fishing in the area reported seeing dead fish. The report prompted an investigation by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, which is still uh, trying to determine what caused the steelhead mortalities. In news from the region, PNGC Power on January 18th issued an all-source request for proposals for generating resources, joining a crowded field of Northwest utilities searching for energy. Roger Gray, president and CEO of PNGC Power, told Clearing Up that the RFP was released now because the long-term dynamics of wholesale energy markets are changing, and the region's investor-owned utilities are all on the hunt for resources, potentially giving PNGC access to quality products, projects. We want to move early because we think it's a prudent move, Gray said. We see the IOUs moving now. There's lots of activity among developers, and we want to get into the good stuff. End quote. End some quote. Oregon households, uh, some Oregon households struggling to get by could get a break on their power bills this year if regulators approve Portland General Electric's proposed income-based bill discount program. Uh, the three-tier discount structure aims to reduce the energy burden on low-income households. The new discount program comes out of House Bill 2475, passed by Oregon lawmakers in 2021, to address economic inequities in rate design. The program would put in place an interim rate while OPUC investigates more permanent means to address energy inequities. Good. Next, news from the Potomac. President Joe Biden on January 19th suggested the climate element of the 10-year Build Back Better budget legislation could gain enough support to pass the Senate, telling a press conference that we're, quote, we're probably going to have to break the bill up, unquote. Clearing it up this week, the CAISO Board of Governors at a January 20th virtual joint meeting with the Western EIM governing body approved the extension of the tariff provisions as requested by CAISO staff. The rules, which establish, quote, high priority, quote, wheel throughs that take precedence, drew resistance from some entities outside of the ISO. Kaiso is working on a long-term initiative for a permanent set of rules. Finally, in a story outside of News Data's family of sites, uh, a San Francisco startup named Living Carbon is trying to improve the natural and complicated and inefficient photosynthesis process in trees so they can absorb carbon dioxide more quickly from the atmosphere. It's beginning with large forest projects and then plans to expand beyond trees. Thanks to our production partners, News Data, for letting us use their leads. And thanks to Ian for compiling them. Now back to the crew to close out the episode. Okay, let's do it again one more time. Ready, Gillary? Let's do it okay. together, okay? We hope it, <laughs> it sparked, sparked your interest. Your interest. <laughs> okay, thanks, Chris, for the, the title. Let us know if you liked how it worked. So good. Okay, that's all the news we're covering this week. The full interview with John Hairston will be published next week on or before Thursday, February 3rd. So smash that subscribe button to be sure you don't miss it. 
The next regularly scheduled episode will be recorded February 7th and published February 10th. To make sure you don't miss it, you can sign up for an unintrusive newsletter with links to all the ways to consume this fascinating content at publicpowerunderground.substack.com. Otherwise, you can subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Robert, you did a great job as a celebrity guest host. Do you endorse this for sure. someone else to do this? Do you Absolutely. Think so? Was this fun? Do you feel like you are valued and appreciated? Because that's what I'm going for here. I, I feel deeply valued and appreciated and, and had a great time. Good. Okay. I, I do want to put a plug. I learned today we may be getting our own website with links for merch. It may actually be coming. It may be coming after all this time. We may have Public Power Underground work merch. Finally. You're going to get nice. buy some, Jason? You're going to buy some? I have to buy it? Uh, yeah. Yes, you sure. have to buy it. That's <laughs> Everybody thinks they're going to get merch for free, okay? Nobody's Every getting merch for free. John Hairston's not getting merch for free. Yeah. Tell you what, he was surprised by that. Mark Farmer's not getting merch for free. Robert, you're going to have to buy merch. I'll spring for a hoodie. I, I, I can buy my merch. I'm not worried about that. <laughs> okay. the, 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 the deeper question is whether my wife will allow any more merch in the house. Well, maybe you can offer that that would be a great Christmas present. <laughs> I'll let you make that suggestion. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, I can't. I couldn't do it. All right. Straight face. Back, back to script here. All right. As always, send any news, questions, opinions, corrections, or complaints to Paul on Twitter at a power manager. Or if you're a friend of the underground, you can send any of us a note. You don't have to be subscribed to News Data's weekly newsletter to get this podcast, but it sure makes the podcast make a lot more sense. That's all for this week. Thanks for tuning in. Public Power Underground is a production of Klatskin IPUD and News Data. The views expressed here are our own and not the official views of Klatskin IPUD, News Data, or the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. Public Power Underground is public power and public power adjacent news from a power department's perspective. It's written and directed by Klatskin IPUD's power department, led by me, Paul Dockery, and it's edited and published by the stellar team at Pioneer Utility Resources, led by associate producer Sarah Wooden. Our theme song, Roll On Enthusiast, was rewritten, performed, and recorded by Aaron Guillory and Ian Bledsoe. And special thanks to our celebrity guest host, Robert Cromwell, for participating in this week's episode. Public Power Underground, for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, where you're valued and appreciated. We bring in some people way smarter than us. Those in the industry with knowledge to trust We know we aren't perfect, sometimes it's a bust But we'll roll on, enthusiasts, roll on Roll on